for the week of November 12th, 2023. This is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 638, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, this is Jay Sperling Reich. And in Birmingham, Alabama, where they don't really allow strikes, I'm Michael Giltz. Did I even say that this was Showbiz Sandbox? I guess I did, right? I think you did it. I hope you did. And I know you did. But I do know okay. one thing, Sperling. You got it right. You said the strike, you predicted this off air, would end November 8th because the CEOs didn't want to have to deal with pushback during their quarterly earnings calls to investors and journalists. So they made a big push to get the deal done, including concessions on pay and AI. And it wasn't quite enough to declare the strike over until Wednesday night. That was the day they did their quarterly earnings. But the buzz was in the air that the strike was about to end. So uh, you called it full credit to you. Yeah, and I really called it down to almost the hour on, of course, November 7th. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, they definitely want to get this done tomorrow because it was uh, an earnings Wednesday. There was like five different media companies giving earnings calls. And for some reason, they all decided to do it November 8th. And I think the actors, one last little thing, they were like, no, no, we're we're still reviewing the language. And so when, when did they, when did they, they, they said, oh no, okay, we agree to this, but they did it like November 8th at 6 p.m. <laughs> it's like, oh, are your earnings you're, calls you're, over? So sorry. You're just assuming they were being petty. It was a complicated deal. And lots of stuff is complicated. We were given an estimate last week about Spotify. They were changing their royalty agreement. And we heard that they were saying that tracks would have to have at least 250 spins a year in order to get a royalty payment, a a cut of the residuals that were coming to people, the big pile of money. Uh, In fact, the final deal that they've offered up says that tracks will have to get 1,000 spins a year in order to qualify to get a cut of the pool of money that's available for residuals. Uh, So that gets you about a quarter, I think, 25 cents. So if you have a track and it makes 1,000 spins and you're getting some residuals from that, you're going to get about a quarter. So not so much money. So that's how minimal a requirement they have, but that will eliminate the vast majority of tracks that are dumped onto the streamers all the time from people, you know, put peddling junk or hoping to make it big and they're just brand new, which is very cool. But anyway, we'd make the cut. We get more than a thousand spins a year for all our new tracks, right? But we don't get, nobody plays last year's tracks, but every week we put out a new track and that would garner more than a thousand spins. So we'd have some money coming to us. That's true. Uh, I'm going to go knock on Spotify's door right now. Got to go. Podcast. Podcast. Sorry. (laughs) No money for you. You talk. You don't sing. But we could sing. And we got a lot to sing about this week because the fat lady sang. Is that uh, bodyist? I hope not. But the strikes are over. Tell us what we're going to talk about this week. Should I sing it? Because then we'd actually get paid, right? Please. (laughs) I'll spare our listeners. (laughs) This week on Showbiz Sandbox, however, we are stepping aside for the ladies because girls really do run the world. Women are on top of the box office. And thanks to the Marvels that it, well, it didn't open big. Okay. But will it have legs? And no, by the way, that is not a sexist comment that is talking about legs and box office. Keep going, keep well, going, keep going. Yeah, okay. Well, Fran Drescher, by the way, she cleaned the clocks of the studios during the actor strike because she had no other work, you see? So she had to clean the clocks because she needed the money because it's... Oh, well... Oh, I I'm see shaking my here. head no. Keep, 
Keep going. At least she cleaned the clocks, at least PR-wise. That is true, actually. And now, thank God, the strike is over. Also, the Grammy nominations came out, and women dominated from Barbie to SZA to the gals of Boy Genius. Seven of the eight nominees in the big categories, we're talking song, record, and album of the year, they are by women or female groups. The only male nominee, John Batiste. So we'll discuss. We'll also look more closely at the deal struck by the actors between the actors in the studios and networks, including the new royalty pool that takes a cut from bonuses for hit shows on streamers. There's a lot to dive into, and we've got our snorkels and our masks. And happily, we also have our journalist, lawyer, and longtime friend of the show, Jonathan Handel, to explain it all for us. On Inside Baseball, we'll share the highlights from the quarterly earnings calls held by all the big players in the entertainment business. We just talked about them moments ago. And no, we won't bore you with numbers. We're going to kind of talk about who's wallowing in debt, who had some good news, very few, who isn't losing as much money as they, they were a year before. Well, almost everybody, but they're not making any money. Anyway, stay tuned. Pop the champagne. Michael, uh, of course, you know, we're, we always uh, go over our... Uh, you know, the week's top headlines during Big Deal or Big Whoop. But first, we turn it over to you, entertainment journalist extraordinaire, to fill us in on last week's box office. First of all, why aren't we going to bore them with numbers? That's our specialty. Secondly, uh, drink some coffee there, dude. <laughs> you, sort of, you sounded asleep when you began the show. You're meandering through the text. Uh, here we go. We're looking at box office around the world while Sperling starts percolating some coffee. We're looking at the box office for the entire week ending November 12th. We're the only group that covers the entire week's box office because why ignore four days of the week? Why ignore money being made? Uh, a film in India came out on, uh, you know, Sunday. You know, the movies come out eight, seven days a week. They don't come out eight days a week unless it's the Beatles. Oh, we should have talked about them too. But anyway, we've got a link to Comscore in our show notes. We've got information from box office charts and the trades, of course, and every outlet we possibly can. And the number one movie around the world is the Marvels. It made $110 million worldwide. Uh, people are parsing all sorts of reasons why it did so poorly in North America and around the world compared to. The original film, The Marvel, Ms. Captain Marvel, which came out in between two of the biggest movies of all time, the Avengers uh, Endgame thingamajig. Uh, there's lots of explanations, but the easiest number to remember is 33. This is the 33rd film in the MCU franchise. Yeah, the who had make, that? The harder like, it gets. You know, like, wh wh when, when will people stop watching Marvel movies? Maybe after the 10th. No, 33! 33. 33. So, yes, it did open way below what the first movie did, I guess, 67% uh, below Captain Marvel. Whatever, starting. way below, yeah. yeah. It's the lowest, and, and I, I, it's the more, more lowest MCU movie ever. Opening, in terms yes. of its opening weekend. Yeah. 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 That's, that's pretty bad. Yeah. But also, not just 33 movies, also like a dozen TV shows. You know, you, to watch this movie, you have to either have watched the TV series Ms. Marvel, watch Loki, and I think watch WandaVision, or, you know, the movie has to bend over backwards to try to explain stuff to people who didn't see those shows, making it tiresome for the people who did, and yet less complicated for the people who didn't. And so it ends up confusing everybody. So I don't know. It's the Marvels. We'll have to see where we end up. Uh, but the audiences like it a little bit more than the critics, but not that much. So 40% of the opening. box office came from premium screens. That's pretty remarkable. That's not remarkable at all because premium screens, as you point out later in the show, are equal to about four regular screens, according to AMC, the biggest theater chain in the world. And that only 
That's normal because if you go to any multiplex and you go into the big screen format, you'll find it's the biggest auditorium in the place. It has a lot more seats than most of the other theaters. Plus, they always get the biggest new movie. So, of course, they pull in more money. When a movie's in its 10th week, they shove it into the 80-seat theater. Or if it's a tiny little art film, when it's the biggest new movie of the week, even if it's a flop, the Marvels is going to do best in the big, big theater. It's not because people are dying to pay extra money to see big movies. Movies, it's because those are the biggest theaters in the auditorium. Of course, they pull in more money. Anyway, the Marvels made $110 million worldwide. At number two is Five Night at Freddy's, $35 million worldwide. This is already a huge success story, $250 million and counting. In China, we have a film called Who's the Suspect or Last Suspect that made $19 million this week. It's about a lawyer who must defend a death row inmate because they've kidnapped her child, her little daughter, and so she's forced to defend this criminal. Uh, It's made $52 million and. I don't know what the movie is or how good it is, but that sounds ripe for a Hollywood remake. At number four is Killers of the Flower Moon. The Scorsese epic made $18 million this week. It's at $137 million worldwide. But ignore me when I said it was number four, because every movie's at a different stage in its release. Every movie has a different budget. Every movie has a different release pattern. So you could be number 10 for six months, you know, if you get released in country after country, and you could still make a ton of money, while another movie at number one, which sounds better, like the Marvels, is probably going to fade away quickly and be a money loser. So these rankings are just to keep you clear in our chart. The Marvels made $110 million, Five Nights at Fred made 35 million. The Chinese film Who's the Suspect made 19 million. Killers of the Flower Moon made 18 million. And here we go. Here's a great example. At number five is Tiger 3. This Hindi Indian film opened on Sunday on Diwali. It's a big holiday uh, uh, during the Diwali weekend. It opened on Sunday, which would normally be one of the worst days of the year because people are partying. They're not going to the movies, but it was sort of counter-programming in a way and people showed up for the movie. And Monday and Tuesday are big holidays days in India. So, you know, the Diwali festival continues, but people are ready to go to the movies. So this is kind of like opening up on a Friday. So it's Sunday. It opened up, did great. It made $12 million worldwide. And now Monday and Tuesday, it's going to have a great big example to make more money. I predict Tiger 3 makes more money in its second weekend than it did in the first. It's our Salman Khan, one of the big stars of Indian cinema. And it'll be a fun movie to see. And it's a great example of movies opening seven days a week. Other movies only play on the weekends, like Taylor Swift, The Eras Tour. What a brilliant marketing decision that was. Only show up when people are ready to party. It made another $10 million this week. It's at $241 million and counting. It needs another $20 million to become the highest grossing music concert film of all time. That would pass the Michael Jackson movie, This Is It. Priscilla is expanding nicely in North America. The Sofia Coppola film made $8 million this week. It held very well in the theaters where it was playing last week. It's now at $13 million and counting. I can't wait to see the Miyazaki movie. That's been opening up in more territories. It comes to North America in early December. The Boy and the Heron made another $7 million this week. It's at $90 million and counting. What I don't know is how much it costs to make. If you know, tell us. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. You can also uh, follow us on 
Twitter or X or whatever it's called now, at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. Or you can follow us or like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can like our page. Go to our charts and you'll see we list every movie we see anywhere in the world that made at least $1 million. So we track everything and you can go there and look in our notes and see every movie that we've got. Just picking out one or two stories to tell in China, a new movie called Be My Family uh, opened up to about $7 million. I'm not sure what it's about. Uh, Another movie, The Holdovers. I saw that over the weekend. The Alexander Payne film starring Paul Giamatti and a very good Dominic Sessa as the young troubled teen who's an unhappy fellow who's stuck at his private prep school over the Christmas holiday. So it's sort of a a stealth holiday movie, uh, although it's more of a low-key 70s vibe film, shot in the style of a 70s film, given a 70s logo. I was surprised. I saw it, and I liked it much more than I thought I would. It's been a while since I've liked an Alexander Payne film, Uh, but this was a, it it worked for me, I have to say. It made $3 million going wide. It's now at $4 million and counting, hoping for a lot of momentum from critics and end-of-the-year awards lists and stuff like that. Scrolling down, uh, a faith-based musical, Journey to Bethlehem, opened up in North America, made $2 million this week, and Antonio Banderas is King Herod in that musical uh, faith film. And uh, I have to apologize to Sterling. What happens later, the Meg Ryan film that she co-wrote, directed, and starred in, he said, oh, people walked out. I'm like, really? People walked out of a... Well, actually, given the audience numbers, maybe a lot more people did than I expected. (laughs) People don't walk out a lot, but this movie was really poorly advertised. People were not happy. It's gotten terrible reviews from critics and audience members. So even if you were going to see a dark drama, it wasn't even a satisfying one. So, uh, uh... uh, my, my my hat off to you. You were there, you saw them leave, and it's not a very happy movie. Well, it's my daughter. She works at a movie theater. She said, yeah, people, I didn't know that we gave money back. <laughs> she, oh. It was news to her. She was like, I don't know how to do that. You already like sat through half the movie. <laughs> I, I, I asked for my money back when I saw Blame It on Rio starring Michael Caine, the only film my brother Christopher has ever recommended to me. Uh, wow, what a bad movie. <laughs> but... There were a lot of topless scenes in the movie. Every five minutes, there was a topless scene. Now I know why my brother liked it, and now I know why it was not worth seeing anyway. But your friend, Sperling, Dream Scenario, starring Nicolas Cage, opened up on six screens, a new movie for Nicolas Cage. This one got very good reviews. We'll have to see if it actually holds when it goes wider. But it made $35,000 per theater. Another example of how we don't say per screen average, we say per theater average these days. And that's a pretty good opening and and some nice reviews for that. Uh, Like you said, uh, 40% of the box office for the Marvels. But boy, oh boy, especially being the second one in a series where the Marvel movies almost always did better. The Marvels really was a big disappointment for Disney. And they've upended their schedule entirely. Deadpool 3, Mufasa, Captain America, Brave New World, Thunderbolts, Blade. They've all changed their release schedules. You can see the details in our notes, but you buried the lead there. The lead is that After Wish opens up on November 22nd, which hopefully is a good movie, Disney will have seven months without any theatrical release from November 22nd through, I guess, June or May, something like that in 20. Wow. Wow. That's a result of the strike. That is a a result of Disney 
not sitting on movies, dumping them into their streamer. That's a result of Disney not preparing properly for a strike they could see coming way in advance. They had some great Pixar films they could have sat on and held until they could properly release them and keep that brand integrity going. I'm sure there are other examples people can give. That is Disney's fault, not the strike's fault. That's their moronic decision. Does any other studio have a seven-month gap in their studio uh, release schedule? I don't think so. That is all on Disney. Disney. That is incompetence. This is a studio, though, that has provided like 40% of the North American and worldwide box office in recent years. Without them there, that provides opportunities for others, but it mostly provides an opportunity for unsold seats and very unhappy exhibitors facing a mountain of debt. Well, I agree that, you know, Disney could have made different decisions. Look, all these companies could have made different decisions when it comes to where they're placing different content. And it is going to hurt to have 40% of your box office disappear for seven months. But I, I do think the strike had something to do with it. And by the way, somebody who knows a little something about the strike is Jonathan Handel. Of course, uh, you know him. Uh, well, I mean, Michael, should I, should I have to introduce him again? Because everybody knows him at this point. Uh, he is senior counsel at Five Finkel LLP, where his expertise on entertainment guilds, journalism, and tech is prized. He's also the author of Hollywood on Strike, a detailed analysis of the last time the Writers Guild of America went on strike. Although I guess now it's the last, last time because that was the strike in 2007, 2008. Jonathan is a contributing writer at the website puck.news. You can explore his personal website at jhandle.com and we'll have links to all of this in our show notes jonathan thank you for taking the time to join us thank you for having me sprawling i'm sure you've got a long list of people who are talking to you um but we're excited we've been reading your coverage on puck news and it seems like you're most intrigued and interested in what they accomplished in ai that was the final sticking point it was from day one right up to into the last day and as you point out in your coverage at puck uh the Deal with the DGA had one page devoted to AI. The WGA had two and a half pages devoted to AI. This deal with SAG-AFTRA had 16 pages devoted to AI. So this is fascinating, and let's just dive right in. What are you most impressed by? Is it the level of detail or what they, the, the new groundbreaking uh, rules that they got in terms of covering stuff that doesn't even involve hiring actors? Well, uh, both of those things. The... Um the headline here is that the union did not manage to do the impossible, which is to uh, stop AI in its tracks and prevent the use of, uh, of artificial uh, actors or digital replicas of existing actors. But it did manage to get uh, guardrails, restrictions, and provisions around, um, you know, of, of various sorts around all of these items. Um, the, 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 the deal has come in for criticism from, uh, some people, including Justine Bateman in particular, uh, who feels that it's a, that, that it's a job killer and will, uh, kill the soul of the profession as well. That, uh, that if you, if this deal is accepted, that, um, the industry will inexorably move towards, um, uh, working without actors, the, you know, the, and and I want to address that before getting into the details of the of the deal because it's you know the criticism has been sort of has been high profile. I I don't think it's realistic uh, to expect that the union could have prevented the studios from using uh, generative AI technology and digital replica 
uh, technology uh, for a couple of reasons. One is, for several reasons, really, the history of attempts to stop the use of new technologies is fraught and, and you know, littered primarily with lack of success and with, with broken dreams, broken attempts. Uh, the second is that the studios understandably fear the rise of altogether non-union synthetic studios that, for want of a better word, that would, um, you know, create movies uh, without actors at all and leave them, you know, at much lower price points and leave them in the lurch. And those are called video games. Well, by, and by the way, SAG-AFTRA has a strike authorization out against the video game industry and is in negotiation. And, and the video game industry has indeed has an even more heightened fear of uh, AI and of AI-based competitors. And so the, the ability to regulate AI in the video game industry in, in that deal uh, may be, it's going to be interesting to see how much of this deal becomes a pattern for that one and how much does not. Um, the third thing to, to note, of course, is the situation on the ground. Uh, if, and on the calendar, uh, if the union had not agreed to this deal, we would be talking about a strike that would last at least another two months through the holidays. And I don't think that that was palatable, uh, for anybody, frankly, the, um, uh, support within the union was decaying. Support for the strike was decaying. Support within the other industry constituencies, crew in particular, was decaying. And support among the general public was decaying. Uh, this has been, you know, starting from the beginning of the Writers Guild strike, um, and actually before that, because in anticipation of a strike, production slowed down and, and, and stopped some weeks before the Writers Guild strike began in early May. So this industry has been idled or had been idled for, you know, really more than six months. And the idea that you could withstand another two months and that there would be support for that for something that the companies would still uh, resist ferociously for the other reasons that I, that I mentioned, uh, it, it's just not realistic. And, you know, Justine is right that uh, there is a real, there is a threat, you know, to human labor and uh, posed by this technology, but it is a threat that is larger than this one industry. I, I was on a um, television show hosted by Amrat Singh on uh, Charter Cable, and I said, you know, there are other professions threatened, you know, like uh, television anchors, for example. And, and he interrupted me and goes, Jonathan Handel, you leave anchors out of it. There already is a TV newscast with an artificial intelligence anchor that exists uh, in, a, in a, I forget what channel or where, but they're already doing that. But as you detail in your story and elsewhere and all the interviews you're giving, they really made some major breakthroughs. For example, the Frankenstein actors, you can't take the eyes of Jennifer Aniston or the smile of Brad Pitt to create a new AI character without their explicit consent and compensation. Zombie actors. People remember Fred Astaire. They resurrected Fred Astaire after he was died to uh, use it in a TV commercial. You had to pay his estate for that usage because he was endorsing a product. But if you wanted to take John Wayne under the previous rules and make a new Western with a John Wayne AI, you kind of could. 
Now, under the new contract, you can't without getting consent and compensation from that person's estate. Uh, and they've also made new rules in likeness and franchise. But perhaps the biggest breakthrough is when they're talking about digitizing EBDRs and BADRs and SPs. God help us all. But we're talking about extras and we're talking about background actors and we're talking about SPs. Help us out here. Sure. So the, the headline is consent, compensation, and in particular cases, residuals. Um, let's break it out into the no fewer than uh, five. And the, the other headline is that the union got jurisdiction and or guidelines in areas that don't even involve employment. And that's a remarkable accomplishment because in Anglo-American law, the touchstone for unionization and union rights is an employer-employee relationship. Um, so let's break it out. There are, there are no fewer than five separate uh, areas to look at. Um, the first is employment-based digital replicas. Now, what's that? That's a digital replica of someone's likeness or of their voice, or both, um, that is created in connection with employing the person at the same time. So you hire me for a movie and you also scan me and you want to use that scan in the same movie or in other movies. Uh, and we'll get to the consent and compensation stuff in a minute, but I want to first list the five different headlines so that you have context for it. The second category is background actor digital replicas, which is the same thing as employment-based digital replicas, except the employment-based digital replica is for principal performers, the background actor a digital replica is background actors, extras. The third is, in contrast to those two that are employment-related, um, independently created digital replicas. So this scenario is where an actor licenses his or her digital replica to a studio without being employed to work as a human person on the studio, on the movie at all, or TV series, or the actor licenses their digital replica to some kind of an aggregating agency or company, which then licenses to the studio. Um, next, fourth, uh, digital alteration of performances. This is digital using AI technology to alter a human performance. And there are guidelines and guardrails around that that we'll get to. Finally, synthetic performers. These are completely synthetic performers that don't resemble a, a, a recognizable particular person. Um, they fall into two categories. One is what I just described. The other is what I just described, but uh, it's got Frank Sinatra's eyes or Marilyn Monroe's lips or, or both. No, excuse me, eyes, nose, lips, and ears. Um, if any of those are taken from a recognizable person in, in, in creating a synthetic performer, uh, as I think you alluded to, you need to get the performer or the performer's estate uh, consent and compensation. So now let's go back to uh, to the to the other four areas: um, employment-based digital replicas. Um, you need cons the the studio needs consent from the performer and has to compensate the performer, and um, notably. Suppose that you were going to hire you hire me as a weekly player, and you would need which entitles you to five days of work under the contract. Um, 
in uh, in studio, six days on location, but let's just stick to five. Um, and you need me for seven days. You have to pay me for two weeks of work because I'm a weekly player. Suppose instead you say, I'll have you work as a human for five of those days. But the other two days, what would have been the other two days worth of work, we will create those images using your digital replica with your consent. It's like the back of your head in a scene or something. And so they don't need you there necessarily. They can get away with a fake. Well, no, no. The front of my, we're talking AI now. Um, The back of your head, but it could be the back of your head. It could be the front of your face. Uh, Mm -hmm. Now, the technology is not there yet to do, to, to do acceptable human faces for more than a fleeting glimpse. Okay. If you think about it, it is usually the back of the face, a quick profile, a very quick look, or in you know, one counter, one counter example was the, um, the sequel to Blade Runner. There was a character in the original Blade Runner who was a 25 year old, roughly a woman, an assistant to the mad scientist. And um, she appears as a 25 year old woman in the sequel, even though the sequel is made, you know, 30 years or whatever later. But the reason we find it acceptable to look at that face with the technology that was available is that it turns out that the character on not no, she doesn't know it. She's actually a robot. She's a replicant. Um, and so her face is a little bit unnatural to begin with. And that's acceptable, but a natural human face that's to be a human character. Um, and that you look at for more than a fleeting second before a cutaway to some other, you know, image is not quite there yet. Just, just look at Indiana Jones. Have- I mean, the, the last, the, the last Indiana Jones film where they de-aged him, it looked unnatural. And that's de-aging. And it, that was not, that wasn't a synthetic actor. Right. That's a D de- that's de-aging. Right. But to try to make a completely synthetic actor is even harder than de-aging the actor that's on set and is moving his face and moving his eyes and eyebrows and everything. But so, they're going to get there in five minutes. So that's why you have to prepare now. That's right. When you get people there. saying, why, why fight this? Why deal with this? It's not even there yet. That's because they're going to get there in five minutes. And when you have this detailed level of discussions about all the ramifications, you can see why it was really important to lay down these markers now. That's right. Well, that's well right. and we were just mm-hmm. talking, Michael, uh, before we began recording, about the day that this settled, the Beatles released their last song. Well, the Beatles haven't recorded anything since, you know, 1969. Uh, but they, they right. found some tape of, you know, Yoko Ono found a tape in 1994 of John Lennon doing a demo. They took the demo, fed it through AI, and they separated the tracks, and they were able to... Right, now, now that's the music. Now, that's a vocal. That's an audio. Right, but I'm just saying, another yeah, no. But yes. But then in the video, they have John Lennon from the past, you know, and that's Photoshopping, to put it in blunt terms. But again, this is all the technology that is revolving around AI and the possibilities that will be there. You have an older John interacting with a, you know, a younger John interacting with a current day Paul, and then they're all around each other, and this right. is only going to get better. The possibilities right. are endless. It's it- it gets better now and then. Oh, that's um, the name of the song. I get <laughs> well it. Well done. That well is the name done. of the song. That's, that's so, what he's doing. <laughs> so, and, and let me talk about compensation for employment-based digital replicas. So in the example I was giving, uh, instead of working me for seven days, they work me for five days. Then they use my DR, my digital replica, to do the other two days worth of work. They have to pay me for the one week that I worked. And then for the other two days that I would have worked, 
they don't have to pay me the full week that they would have paid me if I had worked those two days, but they have to pay me pro rata two fifths of my weekly rate. Um, So that reduces the incentive to displace human labor because it means that you don't, that the studio does not get the full savings of saying, well, we didn't use a person. So we, we only have to pay them for the one week. In addition, my, my residuals will be calculated as though I had worked all seven days. Well, let's- and in fact, in fact, if I'm completely eliminated, my human performance is completely eliminated from the movie, and all that remains is my digital avatar, my, my digital replica, I still get residuals as though I had worked the equivalent number of days. Well, and I guess the way a CEO would look at it is, what do you mean? I would have had to have paid you for two full weeks before. Now I'm paying you for one full week and just two days. So instead of paying you five-fifths, I'm paying you for two-fifths. I've saved money. Uh, you know, They save money. And by the way, I can use those other two days to take a different job. Right. As, as an actor. Or as an actor. Or you know, or relax or work on my own projects or do whatever. So there's a bit of a, you know, of a, of a sharing there, but you know, but you're, but the CEO is not getting to say, well, you weren't working those two days, you know, so I'll pay you a flat fee for scanning you and that's it. They don't get, which to is what that. they did in the past, which is what they did in the past and what they wanted to do. Right. Well, and, and as far as compensation goes, they came in asking for 11%, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe, well, that's, that's basic wages. Let's not, yeah. That's not AI. Yeah, no, but I mean, the, the, but they got, I mean, they got huge, I mean, everybody's talking about AI, which I understand. Well, let's, let's talk about, all right, let's talk about basic wages for a minute. They came in wanting 15%, actually. Okay. Oh, studio, wow. Okay. And the studios were offering 5%, which is what the DGA and Writers Guild got, WGA got. Um, they, they narrowed the gap to seven versus nine, and eventually the union blinked and accepted seven. This, the, the, this is where the studios got what they wanted. The union got an increase that was better. That is two to three times what they got. They've gotten in past years, and about fifty, almost fifty percent better than what the Writers Guild and Directors Guild got. But but not enough to truly catch up with. We had seven percent and six and a half percent inflation for the last couple of years at a time when the union increases were like I don't know two percent or something each year. But this was a, a critical issue for the studios for two reasons. One is that the basic wage increase turns out to be, as I, as I exclusively reported after doing the calculation, uh, 85% or more of the cost of the entire deal. Wow. So it's an enormous part of the, of the deal. And secondly, what SAG gets, what SAG after gets this year in basic wages will, will, will help set expectations for three contracts expiring next year, actually four. Um, mid-year, the sag after net code expires, which is for reality and uh, hosts and late night and talk shows and also soap operas. More importantly, or larger, the IOTSI crew agreement across the uh, country actually uh, expires. And the Teamsters Agreement in Los Angeles and Los Angeles area, and they're critical because they haul the equipment that you need to shoot movies and TV. So if they were to strike, you you wouldn't be shooting anything, at least in this area. And then later in the year, uh, the Teamsters Casting Director Agreement as well. So, you know, the seven keeping it to 7% rather than 9% or 10 or whatever, uh, 10 would have been meet me halfway between 5 and 15, uh, was critical for the studios. 
Uh, background actors did get 11%, by the way, in the first year. Um, second and third year for both background and principals is four and then three and a half. The, the real debate was over the first year increase. So that was where the union compromised in return for getting uh, significant changes in residuals for streaming, uh, better than what the Writers Guild got, which was better than what the DJ got, and uh, these these AI provisions that we were we've been talking about. Now, as far as residuals go, uh, what was better? Uh, I mean, basically, this is especially for streaming. Uh, they kind of got the same thing. The twenty percent uh, have to watch it within ninety days or something to that effect. What what is better here? Because you know, here's the thing: the, what the Writers Guild got that you know. 20% of subscribers have to watch a show or a, or, or a movie within 90 days. So that's the success metric, so to speak. Uh, right. Just f- fewer than 5% of the original programs on Netflix reach that, according to some research done by Digital, Digital Eye, a London data provider. So th- basically, it's, they're saying, like, look, hardly anybody's even making this. Well, right, but and Fran Drescher said next year we'll come back and we'll push for ten percent uh, uh, subscribers watching the show within ninety days. More importantly, they have this royalty pool. They could not get a cut of the money coming in from subscriptions. They couldn't get a subscriber fee, so they pivoted and said, "All right, how about this? We want that same success metric, but we're going to get a hundred percent bonus, not just fifty uh, percent of what we would have gotten." and we're going to give 75% of that to the people who succeeded, the actors in those hit shows, but 25% will create a pool for all the actors working in streaming television because we all know streaming shows have fewer episodes, there's very little to no back end, and therefore all those working actors are on those, all those other shows are not making the same amount of money. So that's where they got another pocket of money. It's only going to be like $120 million over five years. But it's a start. And just like that metric of 20%, they can push to get that lower and they can push to get the amount of money going into that pool bigger. Was that a big win for them? It was. So the way, so the way residuals work in the streaming, there's um, in product that's made for streaming is what we're talking about and that plays on streaming. So we're not talking about Suits, which was made for basic cable and moved over to streaming. We're not talking about a movie that opens in the theaters first as a theatrical movie and then goes to streaming. We're talking about a movie made for streaming or a series made for streaming. Uh, the basic residual um, is um, a, pay, a, a payment that decline a once a year payment that declines year by year. And the, uh, we'll leave aside the details of how it's calculated. Um, to give you a sense of magnitude, uh, a one hour, the writer or director on a one hour show on Netflix and the size of the platform matters. So that's why I mentioned Netflix and the length of the program matters. So that's why I mentioned one hour um, would be entitled under the, the basic residual to about $27,000. The most that an actor, the actor for the actor, it depends on their salary, but there's a cap. The most that an actor would make on the same show for the basic residual is um, about $3,000 or so. Now, the DGA got minor improvements in the domestic residual and significant improvements in the foreign residual for made for streaming product. The, um, the Writers Guild and, the, and SAG-AFTRA both got those same uh, improvements in pattern 
from with the, with the DGA. The Writers Guild wanted a success-based bonus, though, for, for quote-unquote successful shows on streaming. And as you point out, there's a very narrow definition of success, but if a show is a success, the residual, the bonus is 50% of the residual you would have otherwise gotten. So in my Netflix example, the writer or director would get another 13500 The actor would get another, if it were the same formula, would get another 1500 But what SAG-AFTRA got, as you said, is a 100% bonus. So there's an extra $3,000 you're looking at. But only but seventy only seventy five percent of that goes to the actor. So the actor will get a twenty two fifty bonus in this example. The other seven fifty goes into a new fund. The new fund is estimated to be uh, that it'll be worth ten million only ten million dollars per year. The the one hundred twenty million that you cited over three years, forty million a year, is the total bonus residual to SAG AFTRA. Seventy five percent of that. 75% of that goes to the actors on these quote unquote successful shows, same definition of success as with the writers guild. Uh, and 25%, in other words, 10 million a year goes to the fund. So very paltry amount, very small amount. Uh, I mean, wouldn't be small if it weren't all in my bank account, but distributed among multiple people, you know, lots of people, that's not a lot of money. Now, the important thing about this fund, this fund is twofold. Um, one is that establishing the concept means that you can come back and ask for more money in the future. Um, the other, uh, there's three things actually. The second is the intent, the distribution formula, where's this money going to go? That'll be decided by a, a board of trustees that's 50-50 management labor that'll run the fund. But the intent is that it will not go to the pe- the actors on the successful quote unquote successful shows that are getting that bonus residual already it'll go to other actors on streaming so maybe it'll be the next tier so there's not an all or nothing a near success but not quite a success might get it or maybe it'll go a little bit to you know everyone on streaming or maybe some of them will even go to background actors uh which background actors have never shared in residuals you know and that's all open for discussion uh, you do want to avoid, you know, more 49 cent checks. So that'll be a constraint, especially with the, in the initial years with a small amount of money in the fund. But that is TBD. Um, the other important thing about this fund is that there isn't one for the Writers Guild or the Directors Guild, which means that when SAG-AFTRA, if SAG-AFTRA says, we want our residuals improved, they the studios will say, well, if we improve yours, and it'll cost us an extra forty million to improve yours, let's say forty million. I'm just making up a number. We're all the other two unions are going to ask for pattern, and um, so it'll cost us more than forty million out of pocket. It'll cost us a hundred million, or you know whatever. There's a multiplier factor because of pattern bargaining. But this fund is out of pattern. There is no fund for the other two unions. And until and unless they decide to expend negotiating capital trying to establish one, there isn't a fund. And so if SAG-AFTRA seeks improvements in its fund, the studios will have a harder time saying, well, if we improve your fund, we'll have to improve the other two unions' funds. Oh, yeah, I forgot. They don't have funds. But, but don't so you think it, those two unions three years from now will both ask for that? They might, or the, but that takes negotiating capital. It, it takes away capital that they might spend on something else. Remember that the DGA didn't even ask for a success bonus. 
and the Writers Guild didn't ask for more than 5%. So pattern, the, one of the big goals of the SAG-AFTRA here, having historically been the sort of the weakest in, the, in pattern bargaining kinds of issues, was to break pattern. And they broke pattern in basic wages. They got seven rather than five. And they broke pattern in residuals. And th- those are accomplishments that will probably pay significant dividends in the future. And to any actors who say, gee, I'm in a hit show, why should other people benefit? Uh, the, compared to the writers and directors, at least percentage-wise, their bonus is 50% bigger. They got a 75% compensation bonus for being on a hit show compared to the 50% bonus that writers and directors, more of them, other money goes to other people. But hey, enjoy the fact that you got a bigger bump in percentage-wise than the other people did. Now, after right, every- and, and That's right. And next year- the sh- you may be on a new show that isn't a hit, that isn't a quote-unquote yeah. success, and you'll benefit from it. That's, that's union solidarity. Absolutely. Now, after every strike, people say, well, why didn't they just make this? They could have made this deal day one. That's what everybody says after every strike yeah, if the ever. C- if the C- they could have if the CEOs had rolled up their sleeves and been in the room. It took the CEOs to get a Writers Guild deal. It took the CEOs to get a SAG-AFTRA deal. The CEOs should have been in the room 150 days ago before either contract expired so that we wouldn't have had two strikes. Have they learned anything? We'll have to see. We have, ne- we have ne- multiple negotiations next year. Let's see how those play out. If they start meeting now with those people instead of waiting to the deadline, well, that, that'll be the... F- first clear sign that they've learned something when the top people are involved early on, where they don't wait. And there's the idea of a standing committee where the, where the act sag after and the studios and streamers meet regularly. Is this going to have an impact in the future or is that just like pie in the sky? They're having a meeting and so what? Oh, it's moderately helpful and better than nothing. But the, um, the real need is to have continuing contact with the uh, CEOs on a, on an ongoing basis. Uh, so that they and to try to ensure that they're more engaged and uh, involved earlier by far than they were uh, this time around. I mean, so it's they a do that with the Teamsters. We'll see if they do that with the IA, the Teamsters, with the SAG after net code. You know, uh, that'll be indicative. I mean, no one's going to have any meetings really until after the uh, holidays. Of course, it's you know it's holiday season now, but uh, come January. It will be very interesting to to know what's uh, what's going on. Well, um, you know, we have a, a listener email. I don't know if we'll get to it today, but uh, that talked about the circular nature of lawyers versus the CEOs and how the lawyers kind of hone the contracts, whereas the the CEOs at very high levels go, yeah, uh, put in some language about AI or something. Yeah, well, you just yeah. Whereas the lawyers be, and yourself being one of them actually say, yeah, 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 but we need to actually put some specific language around this stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's always important to remember that in this area, there is no rule that doesn't have an exception, no exception that doesn't have a carve-out, no carve-out that doesn't have a caveat, and no caveat that doesn't have a loophole. And the devil is very much in the details. Um, And speaking of which, should we go back to the details of AI? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think we pretty much finished with the employment-based and the background actor digital replicas. The uh, independently created digital replicas, again, there has to be consent and compensation. Um, digital alteration, um, there, if, if, there doesn't have to be consent if the alteration 
you know, maintains what was scripted or what was performed or recorded. So, you know, it, essentially, and, and, and sort of minor changes are allowed. I mean, like one example that's given is if, if you're, if they film you sitting in the front seat of a car during a scene and they use AI to move you to the back seat of the car, uh, <laughs> they can do that. They don't need your consent. So <laughs> there is, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're in the back of the bus, in the back seat. Um, so, you know, again, it's important to remember that editing and CGI already change people's performances. There's a saying that movies are written three times, once by the writer, next by the director, and last by the editor. And an editor can make or break a performance, can take a good performance and make it great, can take a great performance and ruin it. It's, it's important to recognize that actors are, they're not mere instrumentalities. They're not bots by any means. An actor, I mean, we've all seen bad performances and good performances, and there's a, there is a difference. But it is the director and the editor ultimately and the uh, the effects people working under direction of of you know of the uh director that can change a performance very dramatically so the studios were not going to agree to restrictions on ai that restricted them from doing things that they were already customarily doing and permitted to do and so that's something to be uh, aware of and you know some of what for example some of what justine bateman complain about in the deal really falls into that category uh, mm -hmm. of like, well, that's the reality of being an actor, unless you're also a producer or an actor director. Um, you don't have control. You know, there, there's, there's inherently less agency in the job of an actor than there is in the job of a director, for example. Um, Absolutely. And then fi finally, synthetic performers, we, we, I think we talked about the the issues there and the notice provisions. And um, so we sort of, that's AI for you. Well, there's so much in this deal and it really covered a lot of areas for a lot of different actors. There's a relocation fee that got a big bump. They took more control over the casting process and how that's going to work. Uh, the uh, stunt coordinators got a fixed residual. The health and pension fund got a big bonus. But there's one thing I don't understand at all. Uh, it says that the West Coast zones achieved the same number of covered positions as the East Coast zones. And this was something they've been fighting for for a long time, and I have no idea what it means. Do you? Yes. So background actors, extras, uh, in common parlance, they don't, they don't like that, used to be represented by the Screen Extras Guild, which was absorbed by SAG in um, 1992. And... For reasons that I'm not aware of, uh, there were differences that have persisted uh, between the New York and Los Angeles background zones. One of those differences is this. Suppose I'm hiring uh, 100 extras for a movie. Now, suppose I'm hiring, first of all, suppose I'm hiring 100 principal performers and I'm a signatory to the SAG after agreement. All those principal performers have to be given SAG after terms. Okay, uh, no matter how many principal performers I hire, I've got a movie with just two people. Got a movie with a hundred actors. God knows, whatever. Now, suppose I'm hiring a hundred background performers. They don't all have to be given union terms. Ah. Only a certain number of them do. How many? Um, 
I believe the number in New York for a movie, and it's different for TV, I believe the number in New York was is 50. Don't hold me to it, but let's just say 50, meaning that the additional 50 background that I hire do have to be paid minimum wage, but not be paid the union scale for background and not be given um, an upgrade if they, well, and certainly not be given like extra money if they bring their own wardrobe and things of that sort that are part of the union agreement. So, so I said it's 50, 50 positions are covered positions in New York. What about in Los Angeles? In Los Angeles, it was, I believe, 28 positions hmm. had to be union positions, not 50. They have equalized that number. It is now 50 or whatever in both zones. Now, there are other differences that are even more in the weeds uh, between the two background schedules, X1 and X2, um, in the LA and New York background schedules. So they haven't, they weren't able to get everything on parity the way they want to, but they got the most important part, uh, the, the, the definition or the requirement of covered positions is equalized. So that's and what both that of is. Those, and those fights are exactly what this battle was about when they talk about fighting for stunt coordinators and actors who are just doing casting calls and people who are in background and AI. All these fights really do matter for all these different areas of SAG-AFTRA, and that's why this battle was so important. We could talk about it all day, but we know you've got a lot of other interviews lined up, and uh, we hope you come back again as more details come out about this uh, whole deal that we have. Well, I'll be glad to. I'll be glad to. And you're exactly right. It, SAG-AFTRA has a lot of different constituencies. Um, I've seen, I've heard estimates that the background constituency is like 20,000 people or so, and they have the same vote, one vote, one person, one vote, one member, one vote. They have the same vote as, you know, as Tom Cruise or as a working actor, you know, making a hundred thousand a year, let's say. Except Tom Cruise um, will, will, will cast his vote from an airplane that he's jumping out of, uh, while on a motorcycle in a car. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, that's right. Um, now Fran Drescher, I mean, it's, I, I'm sure you watched her speech. Boy, oh boy. <laughs> I went, well, I was there at the press conference at both these press conference when the strike was called and, and when it was ended. I, yeah. She got faulted for not wanting the role of her lifetime to end. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she's, she has emerged as a charismatic and perhaps controversial, but certainly charismatic leader. I think there was a bit of a good cop, bad cop thing between with her and Duncan, whether it was intentional or not, you know, Duncan was, um, you know, strong and steadfast, but was more lawyerly in his, um, in his choice of words and uh, and his framing. Um, last last but, question: Why did it only yeah. get an eighty six percent vote from the board? Um, I'm exploring that the eighty. It's um, the the board has weighted voting, and so out of eighty one members on the board, I'm told that there were five who voted against the agreement. Um, I am told that one is uh, likely to be doing an open letter about that. I don't know if the others are. Um, I was told that there was no single movement or single reason among the different, um, uh, you know, dissenters, but that some of them felt that the deal was overall good, but that there was just, you know, one thing that was wrong enough that they just couldn't, uh, feel comfortable voting for it, that kind of thing. But we'll have to see as they start to speak out, um, to the extent that they do. 
uh, what the uh, reasoning was. Uh, the deal will pass um, with 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 this letter that's coming out. That'll probably go to a lot of members, and with Justine's uh, criticisms. The question is, will it pass in the 90s or will it be the high 80s? Uh, it's unlikely to be lower than the high 80s. And it'll probably be, you know, low, probably low to mid 90s unless there's a, you know, groundswell. But it only takes 50% for it to pass. It'll, it'll, it'll be ratified. Well, as always, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Uh, and it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Likewise, and I'm happy to come back whenever. Well, that was great to have Jonathan on the show. He's, he was in the room where it happened, and it's fun to get his perspective on what's going on and what it all means. I don't think there's anybody that knows this stuff better. And and you know what? I agree with him in that uh, the town, the, the industry, so to speak, was kind of like ready to, They were get, there was some frustration building, so much so that when it ended, uh, I, it took like all of 24 hours and all of the Oscar campaign events with the the actors were scheduled within 24 hours there's like all these big you know oh. these big events now scheduled you know with with academy voters uh to well that, that's not out of frustration that's everybody knew it was coming to a close they knew a deal was about to be made i heard about people called back to work even though there were many things they couldn't do they were there to just do what they could and get the engine running so they were ready to leap into production on TV and movies as soon as the strike was over. There were a lot of people poised you know, at their computer keyboard or whatever it is to get back to work. So everybody knew it was coming to an end. But if there's any frustration, it should be directed at the studios and the streamers. They are the ones who are at fault. They're the ones who dragged this out unnecessarily. They're the ones who crippled themselves, cost themselves hundreds of millions of dollars, if not more, each. And screwed up the fall TV season, screwed up movies until next summer or fall, depending on how you look at it. Uh, it's it's a it's a disaster, and I think it's a, the studio's own making. Uh, there's not you know asking for new rules on AI when this is brand new thing and everybody's trying to figure out what to do. That's not unreasonable. Asking for people who used to make a decent living and suddenly can't pay their bills, needing different compensation. That's not unreasonable because if you don't have working actors who are actually appearing in shows making a living. How are you going to keep the 90% of the actors who are unemployed most times, you know, trying to break it into Hollywood and keep the dream alive? So the dream is alive for actors. I think they had a great deal. And I think the dream is alive for the Grammy Awards. Because it, while we were doing all this. It's not alive mm -hmm. if you're a man. I'll tell you that much. That they were cut out entirely. Yes. Isn't that exciting? As everyone is noting, the Grammy nominations came out. And the big categories of album of the year, record of the year, and song of the year are dominated by women like never before. Women from Barbie or the Barbie soundtrack to SZA, to the women of Boy Genius. Seven of the eight nominees in each top category are women or Boy Genius, the female group. Uh, it's historic, to say the least. When you look at the album of the year category, the lone male nominated is John Batiste, who, of course, won it last year. Uh, it's it's, it's a, a sea change. Everybody's talking about it. It's great to see. Uh, but there's always areas where they have fallen down. For example, the Latin Awards for one of the Latin categories. There are only three nominees. And that doesn't mean that the Grammys didn't see anything worth nominating. That means that there were less than 40 albums nominated for consideration by the artists themselves in a category. If it's less than 40, then you can only have a maximum of three nominees. That means in the Latin music world, not even 40 artists and groups bothered to submit their album for album of the year in that category. 
that shows how much work the Grammys have to do in order to bring in more Latin artists and get more stuff going because that is a hot, hot category. I might have expected to see some artists in that album of the year and song of the year category that we weren't because it was a great year for them. It was a big year for country. We might have seen Lainey Wilson, who just won Entertainer of the Year at the CMAs, uh, beat out uh, John Batiste and become that eighth nominee in the album of the year. That would have been kind of cool if it was women all the way. But you also saw country artists like Morgan Wallen ignored because uh, they're just, they maybe don't think his album's that good. Or maybe they think he's a little too toxic. And hip hop has been in trouble for a few years. But you know what? They're also kind of in trouble commercially. They have not had big hit singles or albums to a degree, certainly not to the depth they've had in the past. But I, one thing I will say, I'm very excited for Janelle Monet, who's up for album of the year. Her album and Boy Genius's album, The Record, are both going to be on my best of the year list. Uh, but I am uh, still annoyed at the timing of the Grammys. The cutoff date for nomination is late September. And that happens to be in the fall season, right before some of the biggest artists release the biggest albums of the year. Because a lot of big albums come out September, October, November, right up to Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. It's a huge time of the year. And that cutoff date should be late November. That by, if you did it just two extra months, that's when all the big albums of the year are out. Just make the cutoff date Black Friday, the day after that, and you're okay. You're going to cover all the albums of the year. And then instead of holding the show on February 4th, it should be on April 4th. And then you'd be leading the Grammys into the spring and summer concert season. So it just makes sense. And they're always out of date and out of sync with the big albums of the year. Uh, you know, if they'd done it my way, they could have nominated the Beatles for record of the year for now and then. You know, it's the number one song in the UK. It's an album that everybody's listening to. The Rolling Stones have a new album that's their best reviewed in decades, I would say. Uh, and there are younger artists who have big albums coming out right now through the end of the year, through late November. And they're being ignored because of the, how the Grammy schedules it. It's so frustrating. The Grammys always seem way out of step. Well, it would be a big deal if they changed that <gasps> date. Because it sure would be. It must be time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Sperling, what's our first story? Well, last week we talked about a flood of new shows coming to Broadway in the spring. This week we have to talk about a show that's closing. The David Byrne musical Here Lies Love had a triumphant run off-Broadway at the Public Theater back in 2013. It came to Broadway a decade later, which meant a $22 million investment and a remodeling of a space to accommodate its immersive nature, where the entire show is set in a disco and much of the audience stands and moves around for the 90-minute show. It's fun. It got great reviews. I happen to love it. It was one of my favorite uh, musicals that I've seen in a yeah. long time. And now it's shutting down just five months after it opened. I, I didn't know that it was there for a long run, but I thought it would last at least a year. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, a year is a long run, of course. It's, it's open-ended run like almost every Broadway show unless it's a big star and they just can't make it run. But uh, it's a big deal and it's a big problem. I'd love to know one detail, which is uh, there was a big fight with the unions and they forced the show to have live musicians. And I wonder how much that increased the weekly nut of the show because it was supposed to be done to tape. And in the context of this show, that made perfect sense. It was not like 
the beginning of like never having musicians on Broadway anymore for this particular show that made sense. And it's a very risky show. So I thought forcing them to have live musicians and thus have a much bigger weekly nut. I would love to know how much that costs for the weekly nut. I'd love to know how much it costs to renovate the theater. I tried to find that down and I couldn't, but they had to rip out this theater and redo it completely just like they did for, uh, the Tolstoy musical, you know, uh, Pierre and the Great Comet or whatever that's called. Um, Broadway needs more flexible black box spaces. There are not a lot of spaces. Shows that run long run a l- really long time, and you need more spaces for flexibility and for shows like this because there's just going to be more of them. And for people who love immersive theater, Sleep No More from Punch Drunk is now closing off Broadway. After more than a decade and 5,000 plus performances uh, and Burnt City in London, another show from Punch Drunk, just closed after one year. So I hope they didn't lose money on that. Certainly this production, Sleep No More in New York City, was a massive success story. It just, uh, you know, it's just been running for 10 years. So closing, it's just a huge triumphant success story. If you can get there before the end of the year and you've never seen it, I strongly recommend it. But when these shows cost money, it's really hard. Water for Elephants, which we mentioned, it's going to need $1 million a week just to break even on its weekly running costs. Cabaret's nut is $1.16 million a week. Back to the Future, its nut is $980,000. If it grosses $980,000 in a week, it's breaking even, and every dollar above that is profit. Right now, it's grossing just $1 million, but that's during the peak fall season. So come winter, that show could be in trouble. And winter is coming. I think you're mixing your metaphors now. (laughs) In any case, Warner Brothers shocked talent and started a trend when it shelved. I guess we're talking about shelving things. Uh, The completed, they, they of course did this with Batgirl. It was a completed movie. Uh, They they said, uh, Warner Brothers said it would make more money by using the $90 million film as a write-off rather than putting, putting the, the movie on its streaming service, Max. It also dumped a $40 million Scooby-Doo project, which was also intended for HBO Max. Now Warner Brothers has done it again. The John Cena film Coyote vs. Acme is a live-action animated hybrid about Coyote, you know, from the Roadrunner Runner, uh, series. Uh, and he's mm-hmm. suing... Acme, since, I mean, literally everything he ever purchased from them failed in one way or another. I mean, those anvils never worked right. (laughs) The $70 million movie was once set for a theatrical release until Warner Brothers took it off the schedule and replaced it with a little movie you happen to know and love called Barbie. Then it was headed for streaming and streaming only. Now it's not even good enough for streaming, with Warner Brothers explaining the decision to lock the film away in that warehouse where they stored, you know, the Ark of the Covenant in in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Remember that? They, they said they're going mm-hmm. to focus on movies intended for theatrical release. Huh. Yeah. Well, wait, wait. Now, now they're screening it for other distributors and they may license the movie on Amazon or on Netflix or somewhere else. Big deal or big whoop? It's a big deal because it's shooting themselves in their own foot for no good reason. The outcry over what they did with Batgirl, which they said, oh, it's overblown. It wasn't overblown. It's infuriating and frightening to talent and makes them not want to go anywhere near you. Now they've done it again with a product, uh, a film, I should say, where the st- a story credit and produ- producing credit is for James Gunn, one of their biggest talents. John Cena stars in the movie. He also stars in their comedy Peacemaker, which is scheduled for a season two. 
Uh, and per one website, Screen Dollars, they said the film was testing well with families, and that may explain why there are turnarounds. Well, maybe we'll let somebody else buy it from us. I mean, you were just telling talent, we want nothing to do with you. Stay away from us because we're just going to screw you over if we want to. The turnaround you know, is, made is it for theaters. I can tell you what's going on here. Uh, uh-huh. when, they, when Warner Brothers Discovery purchased or Discovery purchased Warner Brothers, or there was the merger and all that, you have a very limited They're- amount of time to take some write-offs at 100% of value. So you could take a $90 million I- write-off. You could take a $40 million write-off. Now, this $70 million movie, they're, they're out of that zone right now. So Right, but they still made the announcement that they were dumping the movie. Right. We understand why they're changing, but the whole point is that they are screwing over the talent and treating these movies like widgets that they can just throw in the trash can and it doesn't matter. And it's it's even worse that they're doing it now. And if they could have pivoted and said, well, we'll sell it to another streamer, to publicly announce you're trashing it means you've done the worst possible thing publicly again. And damage your reputation with talent. And then even if you turn around and sell it to somebody else for whatever money, and you figure, well, all right, we'll just, you know, maybe we can make just as much by selling it. You're just, your callousness and indifferent to the talent that you're working with, like James Gunn, who you've just hired to be in charge of all your DC stuff, is mind-blowing in the incompetence. Well, especially now, they're not getting 100%. stunningly incompetent. They're not getting 100%. Well, they're not. They're not even necessarily doing a tax write-off. They may. They're now said they're gonna. They're they're screening it to other services, so they're probably gonna sell it off to somebody. Right. So well, they they've can, been they incompetent can, every step of the way. They can now say, "Well, we only got seven million dollars for it, so we're taking a lot." Yeah. I mean, it's just the whole thing. I agree. It's just. God, I mean, the only reason whatever you do, the the indifferent to talent is really, really bad for your long term. Warner Brothers used to be the studio that really respected talent, where you felt like artists had integrity and were respected. Clint and Eastwood had a voice and Clint Eastwood. Right. I mean, right there, John Wayne. What about Sirius? What about Sirius? Uh, they don't belong to to Warner Brothers, actually. Oh, oh, oh. yeah. Oh, oh, you mean Sirius XM? Yeah, they're not just yeah. for cars anymore, by the way. Uh, this is the satellite oh. uh, radio network. That that might be their new slogan, by the way. We're not just for cars. Uh, famous for being the home of Howard Stern. That's the, the satellite radio network famous for uh, Baba Booey, I guess. Sirius has always been available mm-hmm. online for subscribers, but now it's launching an app and a $10 a month service, hoping to compete or rather complement audio streamers like Spotify and Apple Music. They've got deals with Conan O'Brien, Kelly Clarkson, James Corden, Kevin Hart, Mad Dog, tons of sports and news, talk and more. The service can be found in Hilton Hotels and and share stuff with Amazon's Audible. It has music too, by the way, of course, and, and, and news. Uh, but they really see themselves as a plus one and hope the app will encourage new users. By the way, you can read that as young people. Okay, to embrace Sirius XM and really anywhere and everywhere, bring it with you. Put it on your phone. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? It's a big time late. Yeah, like, <laughs> I don't where know how were to say you? That, but it sure is late. It's late. They bought Pandora and Stitcher. Pandora lost one hundred twelve thousand subscribers in their third quarter. Uh, the Sirius lost ninety four thousand subscribers. Sirius now has. 30, just under 32 million self-pay subscribers, whatever that means. Pandora has 6.1 million. They paid $3.5 billion in stock for Pandora in 2019, and it has 6 million subscribers. 
Are they bringing in that much advertising from it? I don't think so. They've made some big moves with Pandora and Stitcher. I don't think they paid off. Now they're trying to pivot and say, well, aren't you going to want to add us to your 10,000 other streaming services? Uh, their real money is in cars and that's slipping away. And this is a pivot and they should have done it many, many years ago. Yeah, I don't know what, why they, uh, they didn't do it. Uh, it makes, and, and, and I'm curious to know what the heck is a stealth pay. I, I, what is that? I think it means people who got a deal as part of like their phone subscription. So for a year, you're offered Sirius XM access as part of your phone. And then after a year, you'll be charged uh, an annual fee. So you're one of those mi- 2 million people who has access to Sirius XM uh, for a certain amount of time during this year. And then it will expire and then you'll have to start paying on your own. So self-paying means you're just someone who's actually forking out the full money every month. Uh, okay. But there's always deals being offered via Verizon or whatever that people can get this or that. You can get Disney Plus, you can get Hulu, you can get Sirius XM and things like that. All right. Well, I guess. I don't know. Uh, you know, maybe someday they'll write a book about it. And when they do, I won't read it, actually. <laughs> Why? Because I'm a man. <laughs> In fact, the National Endowment for the Arts has surveyed adults and their reading habits for 30 years. And while you might hope the pandemic led more people to pick up a book. The truth is sobering. Last year, most adults didn't read a single book for pleasure. Not one. It looks like this is the first time a majority of people didn't read a single book for pleasure since the survey began in the early 1990s. Only 48.5% of people did so, though it's unclear from the story we read if this includes listening to a book on audio. If you want to blame someone, you got to blame men. Almost 57% Mm -hmm. of women read at least one book for pleasure, probably Fifty Shades of Grey, because if it was for, oh, not that kind of pleasure, never mind. Uh, Well, only 40% of men did the same thing, by the way. Dudes, pick up a book. Come on. You're, You're letting us down. Big deal or big whoop. Well, gosh, um, it's a big deal. It's not good. Uh, print book sales and revenue tell a bit of a different story. I mean, they, they have not collapsed. Um, ebook sales are kind of a black box, and that's where a lot of self-published books get printed, or get, get created and made available. So we wouldn't be tracking that as easily. This is a survey. That's actual sales. When you look at revenue and unit sales, it doesn't look that dire. And people are reading, you know, because they're reading blogs and online newspapers, and that stuff counts even if they're not reading Moby Dick. So people are reading, but reading a book for pleasure Nonfiction or fiction, it's a really good thing to do, and it's disheartening to see it uh, reflected as not that important, even in a survey. Well, that wraps up Big Deal or Big Whoop for this week and moves us along into Inside Baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We explain what they mean for the business, more importantly, how they affect you, and most importantly, why this entire section will annoy Michael to no end. <laughs> we're talking about earnings calls. Suddenly we're, we're money box or something. I don't know what's going well, no, on. I mean, the, the only reason I found this interesting is because it really does. David Zaslov put it really succinctly when he said, and he's the head of Warner Brothers Discovery. He said, we got a lot of debt. Well, he we said, you know, we're in, in a generational transformation of our industry. And he's right. <laughs> He really is because I'm if, falling asleep. Thank you for stating the obvious. If you look and at advertising is, if you look at all of the earnings calls, it tells you what's wrong with the business right now, how we got here, where it's headed. 
over the next couple That's of years. That's right. If you look at all of them, the, the, the through line is that advertising is down for everyone. And, um, and what, what does that mean? TV because that, adver- that's actually really important. It's linear TV stuff that's, that's down. Well, no, overall, the advertising is down. Yes, correct. So linear TV advertising is down substantially. That means advertising on the major networks and the cable channels, that's down. Online advertising for like streaming and stuff, that's growing, but it's at a much smaller level of the pie. That's not a surprise since most of the ad tiers for the streamers have just launched within the last year or so. So they're just getting on their feet, learning how to sell ads in this new environment, convincing advertisers, working out a metric. So advertisers can be convinced they're actually reaching eyeballs, a metric that the advertisers will agree upon. So, But the idea that that's going to catch up quickly and make up for the big losses in linear, they certainly hope so, but we don't know that yet. Debt is a problem for almost everybody, and budget cutting is a big priority for everyone. But let's start with the people you know best. That would be Exhibition. AMC, the world's largest exhibitor, had its earnings call. And they had big news with their quarterly profits. You gotta love. I mean, here they're a meme stock. We know that, okay. And that, that me, you know, their stock shot up. They had all these at the market offerings uh, to raise all this money during the pandemic. So they lucked out. They didn't go the way of Cineworld, okay. Uh, however, mm-hmm. they had their best third quarter in company history, revenue wise, hundred and three year history. Their best third quarter ever. However. <laughs> then the very next day. <laughs> however, however. Yeah, well, because they, what they wound up doing over the past year is raising $500 million by doing a stock, reverse stock split, and then taking, basically diluting everybody. And then they, the very next day, they said, well, well, we'll do some at-the-market offerings when the time permits. That's what he said on Wednesday. You know when that time permitted? Thursday. <laughs> the very next day, he was like, "Here's some, here's some more stock. Let's dilute some more." Well, and they're raising that, they're raising that money to pay off debt, right? Now, why do they have debt? Because much like Warner Brothers Discovery, much like Disney, they made acquisitions right before the pandemic. With Disney, it was Fox. With Warner Brothers Discovery, it was pretty much everything. With AMC, it was all these different circuits that they purchased. That makes it sound like they got unlucky as opposed to the fact that they were gobbling up and building up huge amounts of un unpardonable debt even before the pandemic people were saying this is crazy this is a bad business plan so this is not a, an example of bad luck oh we couldn't see the pandemic coming they were overburdened with debt even in a healthy environment well yeah especially amc because literally sitting on those earnings calls yes amc I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, sitting on those earnings calls pre-pandemic, all you heard about was debt, 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 debt from the analysts. Right. That's all so they wanted to know. Let's not make COVID about. the big bad. Co- I'm sorry to talk over you. COVID is not the big bad. So they had their biggest revenue earning in the third quarter. They also had good news. They made a $12 million profit, net profit in the third quarter. Don't laugh. That is the first profitable quarter for AMC since the pandemic began. So from roughly March of 2020, uh, three and a half years later, um, in terms of revenue or 2019, or I forget, in terms of revenue, it's the top grossing third quarter in history. Thank you, Taylor Swift. Uh, No, Taylor Swift comes after. Taylor Swift is later, comes in the fourth quarter. Oh, well, but in terms of in terms of the pandemic, where you everybody got hit hard, this is the first time that they've turned things around and can make a quarterly profit. So that's good to see. And they really want to thank their IMAX screens for that, don't they? Yeah, IMAX, Dolby Cinema, their their PLF screens, because as you pointed out earlier, 
one revenue from one screen, one PLF screen, premium large format screen, equates to the revenue from four standard screens. So that's, and it's not just, mm-hmm. oh, there's more seats. It's that they charge more. In fact, he was, uh, Adam Aaron, the CEO, was very happy to point out that that attendance at AMC theaters was down 16% from 2019. But that revenue was up. And I was like, that's because you're charging more. And yeah, and that's not good. That's not good. Your per patron spending has skyrocketed. Why? Because you're charging more for concessions and people are buying more concessions. So, and yes, dining helps, alcohol helps. I get it, but it's I, I don't know. I, I I think uh when you're when you're beginning to talk about serving fewer customers and making more money and charging a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you're becoming the opera. Yeah, exactly. That's where I was headed. What happened at Disney? Well, Disney came after Warner brothers, but I guess we could talk about Disney. They basically, Bob Iger said, look, we're, we're through, we're, we're in building again. We're building our business again after we right sized. (laughs) I was like, how can Disney be rebuilding? How can a massive multinational corporation with a straight face say, we're in a rebuilding phase? You're not a college football team. No, you know You're what a happened massive is they, multinational corporation. They, they re, they, you know, they purchased too much. I'm sure if he could do it over again, he wouldn't buy Fox, uh, especially since that kind of locked uh, him into having to buy the rest of Hulu, which they announced just last week. They're going to buy the rest of Hulu for at least nine billion dollars so they will control 100% of Hulu we'll get to that in a second but he said look we're going to have three main areas of interest okay uh they're going to four well, four pillars well four pillars streaming profitability being one of them uh ESPN and sports being another film tv studios and of course theme parks and experiences and right now it really looks like uh theme parks is the one that's firing on all cylinders whereas Streaming profitability, it's not profitable. They say they're going to get there by 2024. It's losing less money, which is why their their stock went up, but it's not making any money. And so ESPN is, ESPN is profitable, and they say that they're going to have a standalone ESPN app streaming offering come 2025. And of course, in the film TV area, uh, the, the TV schedule has been screwed up because they were so belligerent in the strikes, and they're not going to have any movies in theaters for the next seven months. <laughs> yeah. So that's not good. But the real shocking thing here is when he talks about the pillars of Disney going forward, they are not including network television or cable correct because it's disappearing and what they're realizing is they're giving up a dollar of linear tv advertising uh and they're and and they're replacing it with their disney plus ad tier which they're making 25 cents on so they're like wait but they're not realizing that because they they have not even bothering to champion abc and cable or see it as a priority so they're not recognizing the fact they are going full steam ahead and just saying, screw that, that's the past. We're moving towards the future, which as you say, is at the moment far less profitable. Right. They could be doing both, but they are ignoring ABC and cable. So they are saying, screw it. That's where we've been making most of our money. We could be making money on it from years to come and successfully transition away from it eventually while still making as much money as possible, but they're not even mentioning it. Yeah, no, they're not. And it's a part also cord cutting is affecting ESPN. This really comes into play. That cord cutting issue comes in and advertising issue comes into play with Warner Brothers Discovery. But you have to love Bob Iger. He's such a pro at this. He talks about, you know, efficiencies within the organization. Read um, 
yeah, you're, you're saving $7.5 billion. Well, 5 billion of that came through cost cuts. Some of it came through, you know, the fact that you're not making anything for six months of the year. So that kind of helped. Um, but at the end of the day, what I thought was interesting is he said that they will be, it's quality over quantity of product. I mean, this is a guy that like said, we need to make all, more and more and more uh, for the streaming platform. Yeah, I don't know why you're giving him credit. I don't know why you're giving him credit for undercutting ABC and all its cable channels. I don't know why you're giving him credit for screwing up and then saying, well, now we're going to make quality. Oh, I'm only giving him uh, credit yeah, for the didn't. way he positions things. That's what I meant by a pro, the way he I, said- I think he did a terrible job. I think he did a terrible job positioning things in that earnings That's call. Kind of, I'm being sarcastic. The was going to end. I'm being sarcastic. As, well, you weren't, didn't sound sarcastic. You said he's such a pro. He's so good at oh, well, it. Well, he, he, he says efficiencies as if like somehow we don't know what that means. Or he says, hey, we need to- um, what was the word he used? We need to write, make the right kinds of content at the right price, meaning and less of it. So he's basically saying, hey, maybe $200 million for a Pixar film is too much. It's not because animated movies are expensive. So right. he's wrong. But you can't make a, a Pixar film for $80 million. You can't make animated films for $80 million, but they're going to be very different from what the quality is of a Pixar film. And a Disney and a Pixar film demand a certain level of quality that you cannot get from an $80 million movie. Uh, furthermore, the day the strike was ending that they were hoping and assuming sag after was going to sign off on the deal, but before they did, he said the impact of the strike had been negligible so far. Even though they lost hundreds of millions of dollars, everybody's out of work, everybody's suffering. He's got to get he's got four more unions to deal with in the next 12 months and he's dismissing the pain and suffering of the of the working man and woman in Hollywood as negligible. And he hadn't had a deal, did not have a deal signed yet. And doing that to me is so tone deaf. He just thinks I'm talking to investors because they're true. the only people I care about. That, that, yeah, I was going to say two things. One, you'd think he would have sworn off CNBC after his last interview. Like, maybe don't go on CNBC. And number two, yes, you're only talking to investors live, but it's taped and people watch that. And, you know, when you say something like that, it's everybody be hears everything. Yes. Everybody hears everything. One thing that's interesting is the budget. Disney uh, said next year they're going to cut down their budget. They're going to spend about $25 billion. And when you look at that budget, that means about 40% of it is sports related. So they're going to spend $10 billion on sports because yeah. sports rights are so expensive. And they're going to spend $15 billion on all the movies and TV shows and streaming stuff that they do. That's $15 billion next year compared to the $17 billion next year that Netflix will spend acquiring and creating content. So you can see they're, they're $2 billion is a big difference. Uh, Netflix is spending more than Disney to create and acquire movies and TV shows. That's a whole new world. And uh, indeed, you don't sing that, otherwise they will come and sue us. Um, a whole new world. Oh, great. Fair use. Now we're going to have to deal with lawyers. In any case, uh, we, we also have uh, Warner Brothers, and really, it's, a, it's literally the same story. Uh, although, they mm -hmm. be, did begin to... They, remember, they started off with like $55 billion in debt. Hey, they're down to like 42, I think now, right? Something more, $45 billion yeah, in debt. something like that. So they cut another $2.4 billion in debt. So that's... They're at least doing that, and they're down to four times. Uh, you know, I'm not going to get into the the figures here, but basically, you want to don't you want to try and have your 
debt equity, you know, all that to 2.5. They'll never get there at this rate, but they might get to three. In any case, uh, they're anyway, free cash flow. They got cash. Remember last year, they were, were in the hole for $200 million. I don't care about free cash. They got free cash flow when they're not making any movies and TV shows. So that's not really something to champion. One weird thing that he said was, who th- what, what's going on here? Where he says, gee, that charter deal with Disney Plus. Disney had a showdown with Charter. And Charter said, all right, we want to be able to offer Disney Plus to our subscribers. If they subscribe to Charter, they should be able to get Disney Plus at a, at a real big discount. And, and he said, well, that's great. That's interesting. Well, what's okay. So, so here is what you're, and this kind of speaks to your uh, talking about television, right? They're really in, in indebted to television right now because they have so many networks, including Discovery. Remember, Discovery is a part of their name. Uh, and so the mm-hmm. advertising uh, slowdown, that's really, really affecting them big time. And the cord cutting also really affecting them. So what do they need to do? They need to, as you say, transition over to streaming. What is one way they want to do that? Yes, Max is one way and they will make a certain amount per subscriber, the, the ARPU Avenue revenue per subscriber, as they call it. But advertising, their, their streaming ad tier, they need to build up their streaming ad tier. They need a lot of subscribers. They want more people to subscribe to Max. Right. On the ad tier, because they make more money that way per subscriber. And what happened? What happened in this quarterly earnings? Subscriber growth has collapsed. Correct. They're down. They lost 700,000 subscribers. They're at 95.1 million subscribers, uh, and they lost subscribers in this quarter. So if their big plan is to gain subscribers, it ain't working. And that's why they said, hey, Charter, help us out here. Do us a solid. Yeah, well, because so exactly what you, you, your point. They're saying, hey, Charter, you know what? Maybe if they subscribe to HBO or Discover or whatever on, on the, the cable channel, you also charge them a little extra and give them, give them max or whatever it is. Uh, we'll give it to you for $4. You sell it to them for $10. You made, you made money. We made money. And we get the advertising. I thought they were, I thought they were already doing that, that nowadays, if you subscribe to HBO, you get access to HBO. HBO yes. But not the, but now they're saying charge extra for the ad tier. If you're subscribing to HBO, don't you already have access to max? I put, thought that put HBO aside a while ago for a second and just talk well, about is there? TBS and Discover and they have CNN. Uh, and so if they have a subscriber, a, a subscriber in general, not a subscriber to their premium channel, correct? all charter subscribers, they say, I thought the Disney deal was only for people who had Disney on their thing. Well, anyway, so yeah, they're just saying if you're a charter subscriber, you can get under our ad tier for less than other people pay. Right, exactly. Okay. Well, yeah, advertising's down. A linear TV ads for Warner Brothers Discovery, that means ads on TV and cable, it was about $1.7 billion in the third quarter. That's a big drop of $235 million. Streaming ads are up, uh, but it's only $138 million total. $138 million compared to $1.7 billion. So when one of them is falling hard, the other one's growing, grew by 25%, but you know, it needs to grow by 125% right. for a number of quarters to get anywhere near what they're talking about. And they're, and they're exactly. looking at and the they've char- got a lot of debt. Yeah. And they're, they're looking at the charters of the world to go out there and build scale. Like, please get more customers for us because the more customers we get, the more we can charge for advertising. That 100. Charter is losing subscribers. Exactly. I don't know. It's like, <laughs> you're basically going to the cable to the company that's losing customers to try and get more customers. I don't know that that's going to work so well. Yeah. 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 
Cable is dead, and so unfortunately are some people. Cinematographer and Ampass president John Bailey died at 81. He was the head of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. It was not a fun tenureship for him. He did not have a good time for lots of reasons. They had to oust members like Harvey Weinstein. They tried desperate measures to make the Oscars more appealing, like cutting song performances, pushing speeches to commercial breaks, and this ridiculous Oscar gimmick of voting for the most popular movie. But he had a very good career as a cinematographer. He began as an apprentice on two Robert Altman films, Great Place to Start, and Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven. What a great way to start. And he was the cinematographer on films like Ordinary People, Groundhog Day, The Big Chill, American Gigolo, some really, really good movies. So uh, sad to see him go. And this woman, uh, did you ever meet her at Khan? Sales agent and producer Hengame Panahi. She died at 67. Do you know her? No, I do not. Well, full credit to Deadline for delivering the first and only obit I think that I saw so far for the exceptional sales agent and producer, Hengame Panahi. She is the French-Iranian sales agent and producer who died at 67. She launched Celluloid Dreams. I know you've heard of them. Oh, yes. And the careers of many, many in auteur. She had a gift for discovering and nurturing new talent. She spotted animators when they were nobodies, John Lasseter and Tim Burton, and helped them attend an animation festival in Brussels. She worked on the first films and or had a strong connection with a remarkable string of directors, including Bruno Dumont, Jafar Panahi, no relation, the Dardenne brothers, Francois Ozan, Gia Shankay, Chantal Ackerman, Todd Haynes, Jacques Audiard, Takashi Kitano, Gaspar Noé, nobody's perfect, uh, Marjane Satrapi, and many, many more. I mean, she had a really, really good career, and she will be missed. And finally, I love this guy, enemy winner and TV directing legend Robert Butler died at 95. Why did I not interview him? He was honored with the DGA's first Lifetime Achievement Award in TV directing. Two people got that award that first year, he and director James Burroughs. That makes sense because James Burroughs was the king of the sitcom pilot, and Robert Butler was the king of the drama pilot. They both launched a ton of great shows, and of course, he worked on lots of shows like Dick Van Dyke, Kung Fu, I Spy, The Waltons, but here are the highlights. He began with some sitcoms. He directed the pilots for the TV series Batman. He came up with that crazy side angle look. You know, whenever villains were around, the camera would tilt because they're so crooked. He did Hogan's Heroes pilot. He also shot the pilot for Star Trek, which was then trashed. That was the episode called The Cage. And the show was completely recast, but you can see his work in the final original pilot for Star Trek. He co-created the drama Remington Steel. He also shot the pilots and set the template for a ton of shows like Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, the drama Sisters, and wait for it. Moonlighting, one of the great shows of all time. Oh, and the most influential TV drama of all time, Robert Butler shot the pilot for Hill Street Blues. Oh, wow. My, okay, wow. The biggest show of all time in my mind. There's nothing bigger than Hill Street Blues. So what a great career. Sorry, I never talked to him. But our readers talk to us, don't they, Sperling? Now, do you want to read this? Because it's a, it's, it's, it's a pretty- oh, Sure, if you want to respond. Hey, guys, good news. You're both right, sort of. On last week's episode, number 637, you argued, as we often do, about who was following whose orders during the SAG-AFTRA negotiations. One of you suggested the lawyers were calling the shots. That would be Sperling. The other was saying the lawyers were just following whatever the CEOs told them to do. That would be me. Labor and contract negotiations have always been a very circular process, so both are true. 
Senior execs at media companies are usually not domain experts for those kind of contract negotiations, unless they come from a business affairs background. They tend to approach them at a very high level. And if they are involved at all, they usually discuss broad clauses that leave a lot of important details incomplete. That's when the business fair lawyers get involved and begin to sharpen a contract with very specific loophole-proof language. Toward the end of negotiations, it's sometimes a higher authority checking in with a return or initial visit to senior execs that's either done for sign-off or for ceremonial purposes. Some execs simply sign off on whatever their lawyers suggest with little input. Other times, they'll have some guidance based on longer-term thinking. Afterwards, when the lawyers return to the negotiating table, they are technically following the wishes of senior execs, even if those orders were fed to them by the very same lawyers themselves. <laughs> With the actors and writers, the CEO came in to lend heft to the negotiations, but other than salary increases and revenue sharing, which management was openly trying to contain, they were listening to the lawyers when it came to AI. Since their approach was so broad, it didn't work for anyone, including the actors. However, in this situation, nobody knew anything since AI is so undefined and changing so quickly. The lawyers over-tightened the language to protect the media companies, which is what all the bickering was about in the final days of the strike. When you finally read the AI language, you'll see there's no way a CEO was coming up with that kind of language or even would have known to suggest it. Enjoy the show. Keep it up. An LA-based biz affairs executive Please don't mention my name. <laughs> okay, we won't. Thank you. <laughs> and really sent it from a writing burner, in. Uh, sent it from a burner account because I was like, why would you say don't mention my name when I can just look at your oh no, your Yahoo email address doesn't oh uh, no. They're not messing around. <laughs> they know what they're doing. Good for them. Yeah. The deep throat of business execs in LA. <laughs> well, that's a, that's an important insight that of course the most CEOs are not even remotely going to be able to come up with the language. My argument is more that. Uh, the tenor and tone of what they want to fight for and what they want to do better come from the CEO or they're completely clueless. How to put that into words is always, of course, the job of the lawyers, because unless the CEO is a lawyer, they have no idea what they're talking about. But you bring a great perspective, and we really appreciate you checking in. And anybody who's still listening, well done. <laughs> Yes, you can you can reach us uh, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. And if uh, you want to send us something uh, or call us at 888-567-SAND, that's 888-567-7263, or reach out to us on X slash Twitter, uh, at showbizsandbox is our handle, or you can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can like our page. You know, if you do that, you might hear your communication uh read or played on a future episode and to and you'll definitely want to catch it so subscribe to us in itunes the google podcast or microsoft marketplace spotify where we don't get paid uh and uh, well anywhere they give podcasts away for free is where you can find us those links and those ways to contact us can be found on our website showbizsandbox.com that's where you'll find links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, and as well as links to Jonathan Handel's work. I'd like to thank him for joining us today to talk about the end of the SAG after strike. I almost said the strike of the SAG after, like it was uh, the Empire Strikes <laughs> Back. Uh, now, the music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael Gilt has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week is com, the website for that LA-based biz affairs executive. We want to send business your way, of course, so make sure you check out 
michaelgiltz.com. Or if you want to read any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry, head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. (laughs) 